G'day and welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. This is episode 780. This is my interview with Donald Robinson. We are discussing stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, and the art of happiness. Enjoy. It was Epictetus who said, it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. And if you think about that, a lot of the stuff in our life is really how we respond to it, our perspectives and how we react to our perspectives. And we can only change our perspectives if we open our mind and become more aware, both self-aware, but just more aware in general. I think it's really profound advice and it is stoicism. That is why I brought Donald Robertson on the show today to be interviewed and to talk about a couple of his books that he's recently written. He is the author of Stoicism and the Art of Happiness and also How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. He's also a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist based in Toronto, Canada. And this is an incredible conversation. We start off with explaining Stoicism, how it came about and why it ended even. But then we talk about some of the principles of Stoicism and how that actually has now come about or been reborn. And it's been brought into what is known as CBT or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy which is something used these days to help people with anxiety and depression and, and other emotional issues. So we start talking about that, emotions, where do they come from? They come from beliefs and our thoughts. And then we delve into some of the practicism of stoicism and how we can use these therapies to really influence our, our way of thinking, to influence our beliefs, to influence our behaviors, and to therefore influence the direction in life that we take. Hopefully, the happiness and the quality of life that we live as well. Stoicism has some really good practices that Donald shares in this episode, which I think are great. So guys, there's a lot to unpack, but I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Donald, welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks very much for having me along. We're going to fight the uh, bandwidth here today and hope that the connection stays strong so we can share some uh, stoic wisdom, wisdom with our audience. Yeah, yeah. We'll do our best. What sort of stoic uh, mentality can we have going into an interview like this with a bandwidth problem? Well, you know, a stoic would say, <laughs> rather than being shocked by things or surprised by them, a stoic would say, well, c'est la vie, you know, these things are bound to happen occasionally. Yeah, yeah. No, I like it. Man, I'm looking forward to this conversation. You've got a couple of books um, that I've yet to read, read sorry. Uh, but your newest one is How to Think Like a Roman Empire. And the previous one before that was Stoicism and the Art of Happiness. So mm-hmm. perhaps a, a good place to start is um, talking about Stoicism. What is Stoicism and where did it arise from? Well, I guess there's two things. You know, first of all, where, what is it, where it comes from? And then the other thing is, you know, what does it look like? Mm. So who were the Stoics and what did they believe, I guess? So the Stoicism was a Greek philosophy that was founded in 300 BC in Athens by a Phoenician merchant called Zeno of Citium. And, it, you know, we, we talk about it as originating then, but actually it was inspired by and it's heavily indebted to Socrates. So we can view it as very much being part of the Socratic tradition and philosophy. And it, it was around for like in the ancient world for nearly 500 years, which is a hell of a long time, really. You know, if you think psychoanalysis and Marxism and things like that, you know, have, have really only been around for a much shorter period. But we think of them as big philosophies or cultural movements. But Stoicism survived in the ancient world for five centuries. Yeah, well. And uh, yeah. So that you know, you could, some people will look at that and think, well, there must have been some validity to it. It must have been a workable philosophy of life, otherwise people wouldn't have been into it for such a long period of time. And it started off in Greece, and then the Romans got really into it because it kind of appealed to their traditional values. 
And most of the writings that we actually have today come from three Roman Stoics who listeners might have heard of. Yeah. So one of them Seneca the Younger, who was a, an advisor to the Emperor Nero. And the other one is Epictetus, who was a freed slave, kind of the opposite end of society, really. And the most famous Stoic of all is the last famous Stoic, Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor. And so people might have heard of him. And why was he the most famous? Well, just because he was an emperor. So we have three or more uh, Roman histories of his reign. So, you know, because he was an important political figure, like there are records of his life. We don't have that much detail about some of the other Stoics. And we have his book, The Meditations, which is kind of one of the most famous spiritual or self-help classics of all time, actually. So that's who they were. That's a journal of his, is it? Yeah. Snippets of Stoic wisdom? It's notes that he wrote to himself. Actually, the earliest manuscript of it, uh, the title on it is just to himself. So it's a bunch of little passages kind of disjointed that he wrote to himself, a bit like a journal or a a kind of workbook or something, if you like. And why do they call it meditations? Because when I think of meditation, I think of, you know, sitting in silence and... Yeah, like in, I guess a lot of people think of Buddhism and stuff like that. But the concept of meditation has a long history in European culture through Christianity and back into the pagan philosophies. And so, you know, he practiced a variety of contemplative practices, which you could view as a form of meditation. Yeah, right. So thinking on a thought um, or contemplating on a thought for a period of time. And even visualizing things and, and, you know, doing other, we can go into more detail, but the, you know, the various kind of mental psychological mind flips that he was practicing that he talks about in the meditations, you know, which we could describe as various types of meditation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So most popular um, stoic, I suppose. Yeah, I think he's probably the one that most people are likely to have read. Here's a little metric for you. Um, half a million people on Facebook mention Stoicism in their profile, but one and a half million, three times as many, mention Marcus Aurelius. Okay. Is that quoting Marcus Aurelius? Because he's got a huge amount of quotes on the, on, on the internet. I think they just, they're citing him as one of their favorite authors uh, in their okay. profile. Yeah. So he's, there are many people who say they're, they're into Marcus Aurelius that, that will tell you that they've not even really made the connection that he was a Stoic. If that, that might seem a little bit odd in a way, mm. but often I'll speak to people and they go, oh, yeah, I read Marcus Aurelius. I'm really into him. Oh, yeah, I guess maybe he is a Stoic. I hadn't really thought about it like that. But he's the most famous Stoic. So often people have just read his book. So with Marcus Aurelius, when, when, when in the, um, the history of Stoicism did he come across it and um, did he help popularize it or... Yeah, he helped popularize. I mean, it's all. This is a bit of a historical anomaly, actually, because we're told that during his reign, unsurprisingly, Stoicism became kind of trendy because he's the emperor, so like everyone heard about it. Makes um, sense. But weirdly, after his after his death in, in 180 AD, right? We're talking about the second century AD. Um, after he died, Stoicism is virtually disappears. Like we don't really hear anymore about it, and we don't really know the reason for that, except that Christianity was becoming more popular and uh, Stoicism kind of became assimilated into another branch of philosophy called Neoplatonism right? okay. so you know, it, it kind of got absorbed into other things it influenced Christianity as well people became more religious and less philosophical at that point perhaps but he's the most despite the fact he's the most influential and famous Stoic and it, he made it trendy it then kind of disappears from history after that does um and perhaps this is a reason why it sort of 
wound itself into other religions or, or even philosophies perhaps is philosophy does philosophy take more energy and effort like does stoicism take more energy and effort by the individual than following you know uh, um, a faith or religion well one argument that people made in the past was that so, um, Christianity kind of appealed to, to the lower classes in Roman society um, and that some people would say that that partly explains its popularity um, whereas Stoicism would have required more of an education um, you'd have to be literate and you'd have to be kind of capable of understanding some abstract concepts so you know not to disparage Christianity but it kind of had it was more accessible perhaps to a wider range of people in the ancient world well, I sort of view it, and I could be totally wrong here, but I, I sort of feel that it would be easier for us to, to go to church and, and listen to someone else um, talk of um, religious wisdom than having to practice that art ourselves. You know what I mean? Yeah, you could say that Stoicism is more demanding in, in that kind of respect. It's more kind of intellectually demanding, perhaps. Um that's certainly that's certainly the case. Um, mm. Although you know, the, the Stoicism also had quite was known for having a fairly broad appeal compared to other philosophies. But I don't think it ever really had the kind of reach that Christianity had across different strata of society. No, no, okay. But that is different now. Like the thing, you know, perhaps that that may in part explain the sort of resurgence of popularity in Stoicism is that in the modern world, people are more literate and like, more able to engage with it as a philosophy perhaps so you know over the past i would say over the past 50 years or so we've seen this resurgence in stoicism's popularity okay what level do you think it is today like i don't know how you you measured the popularity of stoicism today i definitely see more of it there's more literature coming out about it more people are talking about it i suppose but how do you gauge that level of interest and popularity well first of all i'll say there's a couple of reasons for i just just to kind of introduce this briefly the uh, one of the reasons that Stoicism became more popular is that it's the philosophical inspiration for cognitive behavioral therapy, okay. which is the leading evidence-based form of psychotherapy now. And when and did that because start? Because of that, in the 1950s. 50s, I kind of thought so, yeah. Yeah, it took a while to kind of take off. It didn't really, CBT didn't really take off fully until the 1980s, but it kind of originated in the 1950s. And it was influenced by Stoicism. And so, you know, that meant that Stoicism got uh, a kind of legitimacy because people for a long time, it's, it's odd now, this seems like a really dated criticism, if you like now, but people used to think, well, maybe Stoicism could be unhealthy in some ways as a, as a way of coping with negative feelings and so on. And that's kind of blown out the water now by the fact that CBT has been so successful. And there are huge mountains of evidence supporting the efficacy of, of CBT, um, which is based on, on similar concepts and, and strategies to Stoicism. So we know that actually this is a, a definitely a healthy way of addressing negative emotions. Okay. And what is CBT exactly? I know that's your field of uh, expertise as well. What is the link between CBT and um, philosophy? Well, that's really easy to explain. Yeah. Um, CBT is based on something called the cognitive, or CBT's cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. And it's based on something called the cognitive theory of emotion. And the cognitive theory of emotion says that our emotions are to a large extent, if not entirely, determined by underlying beliefs. So a belief is a cognition. That's what we mean by cognition. And that's more important than it might seem at first, because if I say that my emotions are shaped by underlying beliefs, those beliefs have a truth value. 
and we can evaluate whether they're true or false. We can test them out empirically. We can evaluate whether they're helpful or unhelpful. We can identify alternative beliefs that we could adopt. And that opens up a whole repertoire of therapeutic techniques that we can start to use to modify underlying beliefs and thereby to change our emotions. And, and we discovered that that works in okay. practice. When you change the underlying beliefs, the emotions do change. Right. And the early, the early cognitive therapists used to teach that idea, the cognitive theory of emotion, to their clients using a quote from the Stoics, from Epictetus, the handbook of Epictetus. It says, and so Epictetus said, uh, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about things. Yeah. And Albert Ellis, one of the pioneers of cognitive therapy, used to tell that to people all the time. And so there was this very kind of explicit connection between stoicism and CBT in, in the sense that this quotation was taught to all the clients. But at a more subtle level, uh, Ellis had read the Stoics and was kind of drawing on them in a number of ways when he kind of pioneered the CBT approach. So why is it – sorry, why was the CBT approach um – developed in the first place was it to help um people with emotional issues then like depression or anxiety and things like that yeah basically um it, it kind of evolved out of behavior therapy and behavior therapy had originally been quite very successful in treating anxiety and some other like problems like habits and stuff um but it kind of struggled to treat depression and then the cognitive aspects, why we call it cognitive behavioral therapy, was introduced uh, or became popular as a way of treating clinical depression. Okay. But now this combination of behavioral and cognitive stuff is, is used very extensively for a whole range of emotional disorders like depression, anxiety, uh, habit disorders and stuff like that. Or another way of putting it was it, it, it was developed because psychoanalytic therapy didn't really work. Like the Freudian approach and, and kind of Freud's associates had developed these approaches that involved interpreting dreams and the symbolic interpretation of symbols. And that wasn't really working out that well. Yeah. And Ellis had originally been a psychoanalytic therapist. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why, but he basically decided to start again from scratch. So this guy had been using this approach and he thought, this isn't working. Like, I, I'm just, I'm going to try and come up with a whole different way of approaching these things. And he said that he kind of remembered the Stoics that he'd read as a teenager and thought maybe I could develop a, a more kind of rational approach to therapy that's a bit like what the Stoics were doing. Hmm. So but wouldn't cognition or our cognition affect our behavior? So therefore, yeah, one would come before the other. Like if, if our beliefs... Well, I, I feel that our beliefs yeah. and our underlying beliefs affect all our behaviours, which therefore affects the emotions that we have as well. So it makes yeah. sense to sort of work to influence all of them um, yeah. if you can. But. Yeah, I mean, we. so you could say if you, if you can divide human experience into cognition, behaviour and affect or emotion, we've got more direct control over some of our cognitions and some of our behaviour. And then kind of indirectly by changing our thinking and our behaviour, we can change our emotions. We've got less direct control over our emotions generally. It's usually by changing our thinking and our actions that as a consequence we change emotions. Um, and you're right that cognition can drive behaviour, but 
actually it's kind of circular because in CBT we often find that when we get people to change their behavior and do what we call behavioral experiments, so we get people to try acting differently, right. that will often disprove some of their assumptions about life or about themselves. And so, you know, often kind of sticky beliefs, beliefs that are hard to change yeah. can be shifted by getting people to experiment with behavioral change first. So there's a sort of circularity to it, if you like. Which makes sense. But there are, your beliefs yeah. that are coming here from thought, well, wherever beliefs come from, maybe we can go there as well. But if your beliefs yeah. are starting here and that affects your behavior, then by changing your behavior, you can therefore alter your beliefs. By changing your experiences, therefore you can um, change some of the information you have to therefore alter your beliefs, which will hopefully drive yeah. better emotions. We sometimes talk of it as a kind of learning cycle. Like, So we question our beliefs and change them, and then that leads us to try different things out in practice. And then the consequences of changing our behavior cause us to revise those beliefs even further. Yeah. And it kind of goes round in a, a spiral or a circle, basically. Okay. How are beliefs formed? Are they, are they purely How? formed through <laughs> life experience, or is there some sort of innate level of belief that's in us? Gosh, that's a hard one. I mean, there are there are definitely things that contribute innately to the shaping of beliefs, I think. Mm. Um, and many of our beliefs come from modeling other people or from childhood experiences. But, you know, funnily enough, CBT, even like in, in Greek philosophy, all the way back to Aristotle, there's been this argument about distinguishing between different types of causation. So I'm not going to get lost in the weeds of that, but I just want to touch on it briefly. Because, you know, it's important in therapy to distinguish between the original cause of a belief. Like, how did we get this belief in the first place? And then what's maintaining the belief in the present? And those might be two different things. So psychoanalytic therapy wanted to delve into our early childhood and figure out how we'd originally developed beliefs. And cognitive therapists said, maybe we don't need to even know that. Like, maybe what really matters is what's maintaining the belief now. Yeah, that makes sense. does it matter where it originally came from? Who cares where it originally where we originally got this idea? What matters is why have we still got it? Why you know that's the practical question that we need to address. And actually, the main answer to why have we still got this belief is often because we haven't done anything to test it out in practice. Mm. So people that have a snake phobia often believe that snakes are slimy, you know, yeah, like like eels or something. And so you might say, well, who knows where they got that from? But like you know, maybe there's some kind of innate thing. Maybe they heard it on television or whatever. And and kind of who cares, you know? What matters is why do they still believe that? And why they still believe it is because you know partly nobody's challenged they have no other evidence never picked to a snake suggest up. otherwise yeah, yeah. Hmm. you know the minute they pick a snake up they go oh actually it's not like that and that disproves it so you know like often the real question is what would change these beliefs and, and what's maintaining it and it's often avoidance that maintains false beliefs lack of experience if you like okay yeah that's an interesting way to look at it uh Sorry, I'm just in a bit of deep thought there. <laughs> so we, in therapy, we often, and the Stoics did this as well, they often kind of challenged people to change their behavior like, in order to discover new experiences and kind of expand and change their perspective on things. Yeah. So there's one way the Stoics do that. The, one of the main components of modern therapy is something we call exposure therapy, right? So if someone has a phobia, we get if they're scared of cats, we get them to pick up a cat. We get them to do the very thing that they've been avoiding. Yeah. 
but they're going to need the help of a therapist usually to do that. Mm. But the Stoics were way ahead of the time because they had this idea, they called it premeditatio malorum, or the premeditation of bad things, or of adversity. And they said every day, at least in your imagination, you should pretend that these terrible things are happening. The sort of things that happen in life, like poverty, illness, um, you know, arguments, relationship breakups, even death. And the Stoics said, imagine these things happening to you so that you can kind of rehearse them in your mind eye and get used to experiencing them and kind of chew them over a little bit so that you can begin to learn more about them by actually visualizing them in a concrete way and also by you know facing some things in practice like the stoics would you know practice living simply uh, and eating simple food Seneca says you don't have to do it all the time as long as you maybe just do it occasionally on a regular basis um, like someone today might go on a camping trip, right? They might be roughing it for a while if they go mm. camping in the woods. But Seneca would say, this is good practice for toughening you up and learning what it's like to endure like a simpler life or more hardship so that you learn how able you are to cope with it and maybe realize it's not as bad as you might think to yeah, like have to practice. live in nuts and berries for a few days. Mm. Yeah. Is, is that something you, you sort of incorporate into your life in, in some way? Yeah, like there's a bunch of things that I do. See, modern Stoics do th- tend to do a bunch of things that aren't necessarily like f- a focus in ancient Stoic literature, but are kind of related to it. So a lot of modern Stoics, myself included, take cold showers and fast and stuff like that. And the ancient Stoics talk about doing similar things like mm. to that. You know, uh, you know, the Romans uh, like didn't have the same access to showers and stuff, but they fasted or they ate simpler food. Um, and today, like a lot of people are, you know, will will just fast, do intermittent fasting, they'll take cold showers and stuff. Can I get used to unpleasant experiences so that when these things happen to them in life, they're less overwhelmed by them? They don't freak out, you know. They'll go, oh yeah, I'm kind of used to the cold. I'm used to going without food for a bit. It's not the end of the world. Like it's just mild discomfort. And does that help them too? Then. Um sort of challenge their experiences as well rather than the avoidance um which would help therefore shape beliefs yeah i mean the these practices though they like they run deep in stoicism like they're trying they're trying to really do something that's much more fundamental and that's where their focus is the stoics want to train us to view unpleasant feelings and you know external things in general as being relatively trivial in life the word they use is indifferent um a diaphora like, which just kind of like means that they view these things as not the most important thing in life. You know, we're bombarded by messages in the modern world. And in fact, people were in ancient times as well. Everybody around you seems to be telling you that it's important to succeed in your career and it's important to have the kind of perfect physique and the most beautiful partner. And, you know, we have consumerism and celebrity culture and all this kind of stuff around us. Mm. And even going back to the time of the Stoics, they said, yeah, like everybody seems to have bought into this crazy value system where they put like supreme value and transient external things on other people's opinion of them on material possessions and stuff like that but if anyone stops to think about it they kind of realize that maybe the most important things in life are inner like are, are, are you know run deeper the things like our moral values and our, our, our insight into what's going on our wisdom and so on mm. so the stoics thought we had to almost do a real u-turn we had to swim against the tide of society and learn to place supreme value on our own character 
um, because that really determines the quality of our life. As Heraclitus said, character is destiny. Yeah. And the Stoics often, the, the goal of Stoicism in the ancient world was uh, defined as arity or virtue, which for the Stoics was a kind of moral or practical wisdom. And everything comes back to that in Stoicism. So taking cold showers, fasting, living simply or whatever are all ways of training ourselves to place more importance on our own character than upon external stuff. Which makes sense. Because we, yeah, I think we, with a lot of the suffering in, in, in our life, in our personal lives, is from placing all this value on external matters and things and thoughts. Yeah, and comparing ourselves to what other people do and don't have um, is, a, you know, is a big part of it as well. Mm. Like, you know, wanting to, to have things. And so, I mean, I guess what we should touch on, uh, maybe like some of the the basic psychological principles of stoicism like the way we mentioned this idea of that it's not things that upset us but our opinions about them and that's a pretty fundamental psychological doctrine of stoicism people are familiar with it it's the central premise of cognitive therapy but there's another stoic doctrine that's even more basic than that and it's actually the very first sentence the opening sentence of the handbook of epictetus it says very simply some things are up to us and other things are not hmm. And Epictetus goes on to say that ultimately the only thing that's really up to you, and I kind of alluded to this a moment ago, are your own actions. And that would include like your mental actions, like the, the thoughts that you voluntarily engage in. Some of your thoughts are involuntary, right? But many of your uh, thoughts are Wouldn't they mostly be involuntary unless we engage yeah. with them? Yeah, many of like probably you could say the majority of your thoughts are automatic, as, as psychologists say today. But many of your thoughts are under voluntary control. We call that strategic thinking today in psychology. Hmm. So there are thoughts that you have control over, and there are actions that you have control over. And the Stoics say we don't take enough responsibility for the things that are under voluntary control. We should take more ownership of those things, and that's true. Hmm. And they said that we also try too hard to control some of the things that aren't under our direct control. Yeah. We're not really. You could, you could say the Stoics are saying we're not really focusing on where our leverage actually is. You know, we're kind of focusing on, on we're getting things back to front. We're kind of focusing on the wrong stuff. Yeah. And we should get back to, we should ground ourselves, center ourselves on where our locus of control actually is. Like being more mindful of our judgments, our values, our actions and starting there in life. Whereas we're kind of forgetting about that a lot of the time and focusing too much on external stuff. Yeah. Well, so hugely. this distinction... Mm. We call it the dichotomy of control. The, that's what Stoics tend to call it today, this clear, sharp distinction between the things that are under our voluntary control and, and everything else in life, basically. Yeah. Um, that's central to Stoicism. And it's linked to the other doctrine I mentioned, because when they say it's not things that upset us, but our judgments about them, they have in mind that uh, the things that befall us might not be completely under our control, but the judgments that we form about them potentially are under our control. Yeah. And especially if we use Stoic therapy or cognitive therapy techniques, we can take more control over those things. And I, I like to say very simply, you know, to th clients in therapy, uh, many people... I, I, I don't like to make sort of too simplistic generalizations about therapy, but I do. After you know, um, twenty odd years of experience with people working in, in anxiety and depression and so on, there is one generalization that I like to make, which is that the majority of people blur this distinction and they are trying too hard to struggle with things that aren't under their control and not taking enough control over things that they could potentially uh, take more control over. 
And uh, particularly in anxiety, I notice that people do that. So when someone feels anxious and their heart is beating really fast, for example, um, you know, what therapists today tend to recommend is that we learn to accept that feeling and view it as harmless, view it with indifference, not freak out too much about it. Mm. So we we form an attitude of indifference and acceptance to these physiological symptoms of anxiety. Um, whereas someone with panic disorder will often view them as life-threatening. They think they're going to have a heart attack and die, and they'll try really hard to to slow their heart rate back down to normal by changing their breathing and stuff like that. Yeah. And therapists would say, well, you're wrong. It's not going to kill you. It's actually harmless. Like, and it's much better to learn to ride it out and just accept the feeling and not be scared of the feeling, like to view it with indifference as a kind of trivial thing. Mm. Like, it's not much difference to the physiology of excitement, for example. It's just a thing that your body does. Like It'll go away eventually if you just accept it. And on the other hand, um, you know, people tend to ruminate about problems and they engage in a style of thinking that psychologists call worrying, which is easy to describe. When people worry in the psychological sense of the word, they tend to say stuff like, oh my God, what if some catastrophe happens? How will I ever cope with it? Mm. So they tend to catastrophize. They think that things are going to be really, really bad. And they tend to question their coping ability. Like they'll say, how will I ever cope? What am I going to do? I won't be able to handle it. And that combination of things tends to contribute to their growing anxiety. And they'll go round and round in circles having this kind of endless conversation with themselves. It'll keep them awake at night. And people who worry a lot will often say they can't stop worrying. But the weird thing is that worrying is a form of strategic thinking. It's actually under voluntary control. Mm. It might take the right strategies to do it. But actually, that part of anxiety, we do have more voluntary control over, although people think that they don't. So in some areas, we need to kind of be accepting of the fact that we we don't have control over some of the feelings and so on. And in other areas, people actually learn to to take more responsibility, to take more control for aspects of their anxiety. And the Stoics were way ahead of the game, and like they kind of realized this two and a half thousand years ago. Buddhism is is quite similar in that respect, isn't it? Like they they always say it starts in the mental dysfunctions of the mind. Yeah, the Buddhists had many similar ideas. But, you know, a lot of the people that are drawn to Stoicism today are kind of like ex-Buddhists, I think. You know, that's just a fact. Like, mm. there's a bunch of them that used to be into Buddhism. And then the reason they tell me, and this, not, this isn't going to be true for everybody, right? Yeah. But a lot of the people that get into Stoicism, if, I, if we ask them, how come you guys are all into Stoicism all of a sudden? They'll say, well, we used to be into Buddhism, but Stoicism seems kind of more familiar somehow because it's Western. So like right. the exotic aspect of Buddhism, you know, once people get into reading the Buddhist scriptures or Taoist scriptures or whatever, it can kind of seem a little bit cryptic at times. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Stoicism can too, but there's what I call a deja vu quality to it. So people start learning about the Stoics and they go, I've heard about some of this stuff already. I've heard about Carpe Diem from, you know, the Robin Williams film, Dead Poets Society. And I've kind of heard about being in the here and now. Yeah. And I've, I've kind of heard about Socrates. And I've heard about this idea of memento mori. This is a concept in the history of art as well. Like, so some of these ideas were already surrounded by in Western society, but people haven't threaded them together and realized that they all form a whole, like they're all little fragments of what used to be a whole system of philosophy. So Mm. there'll be little quotes that they've heard, there'll be names that they've heard, and there's a recognition value to a lot of it. And so when people get into stoicism, they sort of think, I kind of vaguely knew some of this stuff already, but I didn't realize it was a thing. I didn't realize it was a system of philosophy that I was hearing about. 
Right. Yeah, interesting. And they find that kind of reassuring. Right? Yeah, no, so, it makes sense. It does make sense. Um, so how do we, because a lot of the stuff that you've just mentioned, you know, trying to focus on what's within our control, for example, rather than worrying about all the stuff that's external to our control. Um, you know, even if you think about someone that worries a lot, who is quite anxious, you know, thinking about the worst case scenario and then developing that practice might help that. So then you are less worried about things because you're more used to um, the eventuation of things that might go wrong through practices Mm -hmm. like that as well. All these things are great. How do we start to take more control of what's within our control and really bring this stoic wisdom into practice in our daily lives? Well, first of all, there's a bunch of ways, right? Mm -hmm. Because the first book that I wrote in Stoicism, actually in the middle of revising it for a second edition at the moment, it's called The Philosophy of CBT. And I went back recently, I tried to kind of identify all of the psychological techniques in Stoicism in that book. And I I realized I hadn't numbered them, I hadn't counted them. So I went back recently and I had a look and I thought, how many were there? And there were, I think, about 18 in that book that I'd identified. So there are about 18 different psychological strategies that the Stoics talk about. So a bunch of things that they do. So uh, I'll pick out some of the the main ones for you. We we sort of mentioned a few already. Um, But for example, let's look at that passage in Epictetus where he says it's not things that upset us. It's not events that upset us, Mm. but our opinions, our judgments about them. And he mainly means our value judgments, incidentally. Um, The next sentence he does something that the Stoics keep doing. Um, and I mentioned also this derives from Socrates, which it does. Socrates does this strategy a lot. And funnily enough, he mentions Socrates in the next sentence. So he says, for example, if death were inherently a terrible, catastrophic thing, then everybody would be terrified of it. But Socrates wasn't terrified of dying. And this is a standard strategy that the Stoics frequently use. And funnily enough, Socrates himself uses it in Plato's Republic and and other dialogues. And that's to say, well, hang on a minute. Do other people view this thing differently? Is everybody scared of it? Because if other people view it differently, then maybe it's not the thing itself that's upsetting, but the way that you're, maybe there's something about your attitude towards it Mm. that's actually making you scared. So there he talks about death, which is a big one. But he says, but not everybody's scared of dying, right? So maybe it's our, there are different ways of looking at it. There's alternative cognitions, as we would say today. It's not the thing itself, but it's our attitude towards it that causes us to be upset. In Plato's Republic, one of my favorite passages, actually, in book one of the Republic, I read this when I was like 15 and it always stuck in my head for some reason. Mm. So they're talking to an old guy called Cephalus. Plato goes and uh, has Socrates speaking to this old man, a wealthy uh, uh, factory owner, actually. He manufactured shields and swords uh, called Cephalus or Cephalus. And uh, Socrates, in this beautiful, beautiful passage, says, look, if I'm going on a journey and I know that somebody's already been way ahead of me, I would ask them, what's it like further down the road? You know, is the path easy or is it difficult to follow? And he says, you're an elderly man. You know, what's it like uh, being old? Like, what what sort of problems will I face? You Mm. know, what's the future like as you grow older? And this guy says, well... You know, birds of a feather flock together. So I find that I have a lot of elderly friends that hang out with me and they're always complaining about it, saying how terrible it is and they can't do the stuff that they used to enjoy when they were younger and they can't walk as far and they've got aches and pains and so on. But you know what? I'm pretty happy in old age. 
you know, I actually find I've got more time for leisure and conversation um, because I'm less kind of fixated on my reputation. I'm not as obsessed about my sex life and stuff as I, I used to be. I feel like I've been liberated from a lot of the concerns that I had in youth. Hmm. Is this guy's perspective on things? And he says, what I draw from that is it's not old age itself that's a problem for these guys. It's their attitude towards it. Because if old age were inherently troublesome and bad, then I would be distressed by it as well, and I'm not. And it's the same argument that we find in Epictetus. If the thing itself was inherently catastrophic, then everybody would view it in a catastrophic way. But some people don't. Yeah, right. So this is it's kind of a, a form of, we'd call this cognitive modeling today in therapy, to use a technical term. Yeah. So can you think of other people that view the same problem differently? Yeah. Like, can you think of other people that cope better than you do with this problem? Yeah. And they might even be fictional characters in a movie. Right, it might be, or it might be historical figures, or it might be one of your friends, or a family member, or your boss at work. But can you think of anybody that deals better with when they're faced with illness or poverty, or you know whatever it is that you're struggling with? Yeah. And and then ask yourself what's different about the way that they're approaching it, and that basically means what's different about their attitude, their thinking about the situation, and that's one way we can learn to take more control because we cannot take control over our thinking as long as we assume that there's only one way of looking at a situation. We need cognitive flexibility. We need to th we need to realise that there's more than one perspective on the situation, and then we can begin to exercise choice. And we can begin to ask ourselves, you know, why am I thinking about it this way? Maybe I could adopt a different perspective. But that begins by the realization that there's more than one way of looking at the situation. Kefless is saying there's more than one way of looking at old age. You could even look at it as a blessing in some regards. And that's a bizarre idea to many people. But he claims that's how he chose to look at it. So that opens up a range of possibilities for us. And it does something also, which psychologists today would say is really the fundamental thing. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've kind of postponed mentioning this because it's a slippery concept. And we, we call it cognitive distancing mm -hmm. in cognitive therapy. Or behavioral therapists have a similar idea that they call verbal diffusion. And it's this idea that when people believe that a situation is catastrophic, they tend not to think that they're just judging it to be catastrophic. They tend to think it actually is catastrophic in its very nature. And cognitive distancing is when you prize away your value judgments or prize away your opinion yeah. from the external event and you realize that that's just your perspective on it. And that's a hard thing to do, mm. but you have to do that first before you can begin questioning yourself or exploring alternatives. The easiest way to explain that idea, the idea of cognitive distancing, is one that was introduced by Aaron T. Beck, um, yeah. the founder of cognitive therapy. And he used to say to his clients, look, imagine that you're wearing rose-tinted glasses. But they could be shitty colored glasses, right? They could be blue, sad glasses that you're wearing or something, if you're depressed, let's say. And imagine that you just assumed that the whole world actually does look blue and depressing. Hmm. That would be like fusion, right? You would have no distance then between the lenses and the external reality. You would just be blending them together as if there's no separation at all. Hmm. Like you would just say the world just is sad and blue. It just is shitty colored. But if you take the glasses off and look at them, or if you just realize that you're looking through colored lenses, then you begin to make a distinction a separation between the color of the lenses and the color of external reality 
beyond the lenses, like there's something independent of them. You realize that that's just the lens that you're looking through. And, you know, that's distancing. When yeah. you realize that the blue doesn't exist in the world, it's, a, it's actually something you're projecting onto the world. Hmm. That's distancing. And there's a knack to doing that. And the Stoics were very, very aware of that. That very saying, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them, grasping the meaning of that saying would help a client in therapy to achieve cognitive distance. And therapists used to believe that that was a prerequisite for doing cognitive therapy. You have to be able to view your beliefs as if they were hypotheses rather than hard facts if you're going to start evaluating the evidence for and against them or if you're going to start testing them out. Um, you have to at least be able to imagine that there might be other ways of looking at things. Now, the weird thing is that about 15 or maybe it's a bit more now, maybe 20 years ago, there was a revolution in uh, psychotherapy. So we, we tend to talk about this kind of cognitive revolution that happened in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s and so on with Beck and Ellis and the beginning of CBT. But a lot of people are, are kind of less aware that there's a more recent revolution. So we, behavior therapy was the first wave in the CBT tradition. And then Beck and Ellis and cognitive therapy was the second wave. But we're now well into what's called the third wave of mm -hmm. CBT. Okay. And the third wave of CBT is called the mindfulness and acceptance-based approach. And it was right. inspired by Buddhist ideas yeah. to some extent, but also by hard basic research and clinical trials that were going on hundreds and hundreds of studies now. We're well into this uh, phase of, of the development of psychotherapy. And some of the researchers took that cognitive distancing technique and they said, maybe it's not a prerequisite for therapy. Maybe it could be a therapy in its own right. What happens if you just do the cognitive distancing bit and you don't even bother questioning the evidence for the thoughts? Which was a kind of radical concept at the time. And so when researchers did that, they found out that cognitive distancing on its own could be therapeutic. It was much more powerful uh, than people had assumed before. But the, the only problem with it was it's a bit of a subtle concept. Mm. And as soon as people started to test it out in practice, and encourage clients to kind of really focus on gaining this sort of cognitive distance, um, they realized, well, doing that in some ways kind of resembles the sort of thing that goes on in meditation. Right. When we monitor our own, our own thoughts and we begin to notice our thoughts and, and view our thoughts as thoughts rather than just fusing them with external reality, hmm. when we take more ownership for our thoughts. That kind of happens in meditation to some extent. But there's also a bunch of other kind of psychological techniques that we can use to prize this distance uh, between thoughts and reality to kind of uh, encourage this. One of the popular ones in behavior therapy these days is somebody will take a thought and they'll verbalize it. Like they'll say, this is a disaster about losing their job or whatever. And the therapist will say, can you say that really quickly over and over again for mm. like a minute or so? So they'll go, this is a disaster, 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 until it, the words start to sound kind of meaningless. Yeah. And we know that something like 95% of people in experimental studies, if they're in, like a minute is a long time, right? Yeah. So if they say that over and over again, and it becomes hard to even pronounce the words, like after a while it just sounds kind of ridiculous to them. But when they do that, they gain verbal diffusion or cognitive distance. They start to right. realize yeah, that there's a kind of arbitrariness to the stuff that they're saying. Before, they just thought they were kind of echoing reality. 
And but when they say it like that, they realise that it, it becomes effortful to say this is a disaster, and and therefore they start to take more responsibility. It feels more like a thing that they're doing mm. rather than just something they're passively perceiving about events that have befallen them. And this idea goes all the way back to the Stoics. You know, the Stoics were were really emphatic about the idea that we need to, as Marcus Aurelius says, separate our thoughts from reality in this way. Right? It's, it's kind of central to it. And all of these other kind of mindfulness themes are in Stoicism as well. Like we should become more tuned into the here and now, the present moment. But there's something else, you know, that the Stoics talk about doing that can contribute to this. And that's kind of, although they thought we should be grounded in the present moment, the here and now, they also thought that we should be aware of the bigger picture. Mm. Because as philosophers, um, the Stoics thought, well, well, what is truth? And what is reality? And they realized that, you know, the truth is the bigger picture. Like, one of the limitations of being a human being is we, we, we only see and hear what's right in front of us from, for the most part. And so we, we have a kind of selective awareness of events, and we're constantly moving through time. So we're all only really focusing often on little slices of time and not really in the, the whole picture, the bigger picture. Yeah. And the Stoics are constantly encouraging themselves to think of how events fit into the bigger picture in terms of the whole of, what, whole of the world, but also the whole of life um, and the, the bigger chronological picture. Yeah. So they do that in a number of ways. One of them is a technique they call the view from above. It's kind of like the view that the Olympian gods would have, like Zeus would have looking down from Olympus on, on human life far below. Um, they think of the whole of time and space. So we can't visualize that, but we can kind of nevertheless remind ourselves of the concept. And when the Stoics did that, it helped them to kind of broaden their perspective on events that might be distressing or overwhelming. And we now know in modern psychology that when people become angry or anxious, they automatically tend to narrow their attention down in scope. Yeah. We call it threat monitoring. Mm. So if somebody's anxious, they'll narrow down their attention. Like normally we can walk and chew gum, right? We can think of actually maybe, you know, three, four, five, six things at once. Like our minds can juggle various things. But when you're very anxious, you can only really think about one thing at a time. And that's the thing that's most threatening at that given, given moment. But the problem is that when you do that, it's like a spotlight effect. It's like we're putting it under a magnifying glass and we take things out of context. So the Stoics would say, well, that's kind of like we're committing a lie of omission in a way we're ignoring everything else that could potentially moderate our emotional reaction to these events. Yeah. We're putting them under a magnifying glass. So one way of thinking about that, and a very simple way of applying that, in cognitive therapy, when people are worrying about like a, a relationship breaking up or losing a job or something like that. So say when people are worrying about things, they, they have to choose a particular time frame to focus on in their worry. Mm. And usually it's the worst thing, right? It's your boss telling you to clear your desk or it's your girlfriend walking out on you or something like that. Yeah. So people focus on that, but that's always part of a bigger sequence of events. And you can always ask what next and then what, and then what what's likely to happen the following day. What's most likely to happen within the following week or month? What's most likely to be happening a year later in your life? And so you can encourage people to kind of move events forward in their mind's eye. Now, that has a number of effects, but like one of them is it forces them to 
you know, start thinking about Getting ways that they would potentially cope. Hmm. And it forces them to realize that all of these problems or setbacks in life have a time limit. They're, they're transient. We all move on from them. Yeah. You know, re- relationships come and go, and, you know, and people move on uh, to, to other relationships. No, I'm not usually in the future. Jobs come and go, and people retrain or they find other jobs or they start businesses or they do whatever to cope with it. And so, you know, when we focus on the worst part alone, we're kind of taking things out of context. Mm. But when we start to think, well, what would happen a week or a month or a year later? What, you know, how are you likely to cope with it? Then it still might seem like a negative thing or a setback, but it's not a catastrophe because we realize it will be bad, but you'll move It'll on. It'll pass, yeah. Mm. It'll pass. This too shall pass, right? Yeah. And that partly comes from a broadening of our temporal perspective. Yeah. And the Stoics would say, but that's the truth, that's reality. And if you're not doing that, you're kind of lying to yourself in a sense. It's a it's a form of cognitive distortion, as we would say today, which you know you could describe it as a form of selective uh, attention or selective awareness or selective thinking, mm. uh, like select you know like selective memory or selective hearing. We're kind of focusing on the worst part, but then ignoring the the potential for coping or the or the ways in which things might move on over time. Yeah, it sounds like you got some uh, music behind you there. Someone's in the next you room. That in the background. Yeah, this is actually, there's a bar downstairs from where I'm living at the moment. So you can maybe hear their music in the background. All right, that's where you're off to next. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I should. (laughs) Um, No, fantastic stuff. So where can we, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in in this whole conversation, but um, for for people beginning out there, what what could they do to um, start exploring this more and and start to really incorporate some of these ideas, you know, on a personal level um, for self-study and self-improvement? Well, you know, in terms of books and stuff, it's really easy because almost everybody starts off by reading the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, right? Yeah. And then they might move on to health. And then the next book is really easy because Marcus was particularly influenced by Epictetus and, and we have a handbook by Epictetus that's only like 20 pages long or something. It's just a little summary document. And that was written for ancient Stoics. So I would say read Marcus Aurelius. The Robin Hard translation is the best modern translation, although there are lots of other translations. Who was that, Gregory Robin? Hayes, Robin Hard, H-A-R-D. And uh, Gregory Hayes is another popular translation. But then go and read the, the, the handbook, the Encheridion, as it's called, of Epictetus. It'll take you an hour to read it. You know, best best hour you'll ever spend in your life, you know. Uh, it's nothing. It'll take, it'll take you no time at all to read it. And then from there, you'll be able to find your own way. There's many modern books in Stoicism that people can read. The best-selling ones are A Guide to the Good Life by William Irving. And then uh, Ryan Holiday's uh, The Daily Stoic, co-authored with Stephen Hanselman, um, is, a, is another really best-selling, popular book. And then there's the, the books that I've written, the, the, the book that I just wrote about Marcus Aurelius, um, how to think like a Roman emperor. If people are really into the meditations and Marcus Aurelius, they might want to have a look at that. Mm. And there's many, many other resources they can find. I'm part of a non-profit organization called Modern Stoicism, which was set up by Christopher Gill, who is uh, Professor Emeritus of Ancient Thought at Exeter University. And uh, it's run by a multidisciplinary team of uh, psychologists and philosophers and classicists, therapists, you know, there's about six or seven of us at any given time. Uh, and most of the people on the team are authors that write about Stoicism. And we run an event every year called Stoic Week, 
And it's an online course that people can just take part in and, and start practicing stoic exercises. It usually runs in October or November every year. Yeah. And last year, it started off a couple of hundred people did it. We've been doing it since 2012. And last year, over 8,000 people around the world took part wow. in it. So people might want to do that. And then the Modern Stoicism website, there are loads and loads of other courses, resources. There are over 500 articles on that site written by people from all over the world who are applying Stoicism from all walks of life, all different backgrounds. So, you know, it's stuff that's kind of down to earth and relatable for people. So their website is just modernstoicism.com. And if people go there, they'll find a whole bunch of stuff that will help them kind of get started in Stoicism, basically, and applying it in the and how do people best find you you've got a website as well donaldrobinson.com is it or yeah it's just it's donaldrobinson.name not yeah. .com so dot it's .name yeah. just my name donaldrobinson.name and if people go there they, there's my blog and all sorts of other things I've got a lot of articles and I have a bunch of online courses as well that people can do so and then they can get started with their cold showers and their fasting and whatnot, and they're kind of they're going around maintaining stoic equanimity in the face of adversity, and you know let us know how they get on with that. How does your fasting but, look? Uh, <laughs> I did actually for the first time. I've been doing I've been doing fasting, intermittent fasting, for many years now, and I've been pretty good about it for the past six months or so. I've been fasting one or two days every week, but for the first time I did a longer fast. I did three days the other week and. The funny thing is I probably find it I, – I, there's something about my metabolism. I seem to find it really easy. I, like, I barely even get hungry. So I'll just drink water and stuff and like, you know, for a few days. But, you know, I, I kind of enjoy doing it. It makes me feel healthier. And it kind of makes me more thoughtful, more mindful about food as well. So it's kind of changed my relationship with food. Socrates once said that we should uh, eat to live, not live to eat. And uh, he also said that hunger is the best relish for food. So he said, ironically, you know, uh, the more you kind of stuff yourself with fine foods and stuff, the more you kind of ruin your appetite and you, you don't get as much enjoyment out of food, you know. But if you're more considered, more thoughtful about your eating habits, more moderate, more temperate, you'll actually get more pleasure from your food. And I really find that with fasting, you know, I, I know it's mm. taken me a while you know, but if I if I fast for a day, the next day, like I get, I actually get a lot more enjoyment from my food, even if it's just you know eating something plain, you know, like uh, porridge or you know something very eating an apple or something. It's you know the best apple I've ever eaten in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> I remember when I did Socrates a seven day fast and it was it was a, yeah. a salad I had and it was just incredible. The sensations yeah. of that salad, it was fresh and delicious and it was unbelievable. Mm. You know, there's a Stoic principle there that I should mention, actually, that kind of runs deeper, but it's the same concept. Marcus Aurelius said, look, um, people often imagine that things are present that are actually absent in reality, and they desire them. And the desire to have things that we can't have, like that are out of our control, kind of tortures us. So he said, you know, people are always going around imagining, like, things that they don't actually have and kind of driving themselves crazy. And Marcus says, what if you did the opposite and you imagined the absence of things that are actually present? What happens when you do that? And he said uh, that when we do that, when we imagine the absence of things that we do have, it, rather than desire, we experience gratitude. And Marcus says, well, well, gratitude, we think, geez, you know, like I could not have a roof over my head right now. I could be out in the street or something in the snow. But, you know, I, I, luckily I do have this. Imagine what it would be like if I didn't, though. 
And Marcus says if we train ourselves, it takes effort to do that. We naturally imagine having things that we don't have and, and crave them. But it takes a, a little bit more of a deliberate effort to imagine the absence of things that we do have. But when we experience gratitude, he says it's a kind of healthier emotion. You know, Absolutely. it's... Uh, mm. It's got more beneficial effects for us than indulging in, in craving or desire about things all the time. But the difference is it takes a little bit more of a deliberate, conscious effort to do that. Yeah, which I think is is probably the struggle for most people, right? Yeah, yeah. But again, you know, like it's all kind of circular. It comes back to, I think, the idea of modelling. So it could be that people read Marcus Aurelius and that's their kind of role modelling or they read Socrates and they think there's a different way of going about doing things. But that initial kind of inspiration comes from looking at the right role models, I think, in life, in part. That's one way we get it. Well, the role like models we and the information, about. you know. Yeah, yeah. So they might, people, Marcus Aurelius is a good role model. People read him and they think, even though he was Roman emperor, you know, we can see from his private reflections that he was training himself to look at life in a very different way from the way that many people look at it today. And, and we can ask ourselves, well, what would happen if we learned to think like a Roman emperor like Marcus Aurelius? Hmm. You know, what would, what would happen if we emulated some of the things that he's doing? And it turns out two and a half thousand years later, two thousand years later in his case, that we find that it's beneficial for emotional resilience and in treating clinical anxiety and depression because it became the basis of cognitive behavioural therapy, like we were saying. Yeah. So, you know, I hope that people will delve into things and I think they'll realise as soon as they do that, you know, there's some ideas that are worth testing out there. Absolutely, mate. It's been a fantastic conversation and lots lots in it, um, lots of gold. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing and certainly I'll stick a lot of those links in the show notes, guys. So check it out at thehiddenwide.com. This is episode 780. Um, so jump on to thehiddenwide.com and check that out. And um, Donald, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. I'll let you get to that uh, whiskey bar. I'll get downstairs and check out it, shall I? <laughs> Go for it. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, guys. Check it out at thehiddenwide.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon